Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. My goal for expositing these first verses of Genesis is to extol the majestic character of God and to show the veracity of his word. Um, It's not the kind of text where you can take it and, and make a practical application. But it is the kind of text that you can take and understand it and be able to refute those who deny the word of God. And in that way, you will be glorifying God. You'll be holding forth his truth. We read in the very first verses, Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And we saw last week that it was an absolute beginning. The first words of the Bible teach us these facts about God. He is self-existent. Before anything ever was that we can understand or relate to, God was already present. God is self-sufficient. The fact that he was existent before anything that we can relate to, air, water, sky, earth, heavens, everything, he does not need anything to exist. And thirdly, God is eternal. We are not eternal. We have eternal life in a sense that we will live forever, but we had a beginning. God had no beginning, and he has no end. Elohim, we discovered, is a plural noun, and it intimates the Trinity. It does not say that it's a Trinity, it just intimates that there is plurality. And then we jump to verse 26 of chapter 1, where God says, Let us make man in our image. Little hints, calm the fingerprints of God. God reveals progressively his character and his self through the word of God. And then bara, created. That's ex nihilo. From nothing, he created everything. Secondly, last week we went over the space-time matter continuum, and I feel like I'm in Star Trek or something to say that. But (laughs) that's actually what it is. The heavens and the earth And it's an expression used in Hebrew to designate the entire universe. It doesn't just mean the heavens that we can see and the earth that we stand on. It's everything, all-encompassing. And the first verse of the Bible blows the atheistic scientists' five categories for scientific inquiry out of the water. They say that you need time and force and action and space and matter. Everything that you can observe and study scientifically is comprised of time, force, action, space, and matter. Well, in the beginning is time. God is the force, and created is the action. The heavens equals space, and the earth equals matter. What a majestic God that we have the opportunity to understand with our pea brains the massive majesty of Creator God. 
It staggers the imagination. But that's exactly what this Bible is. It is his self-revelation. He is trying. He is shouting to us who he is. And yet people reject him. In closing, let me add that the things that God revealed in Genesis 1 must be understood by faith. Hebrews 11.3 sums it up nicely. It's by faith that we understand these things. And don't let anybody tell you that they have facts concerning evolution. They were not present. They, too, must exercise faith. It's just that our faith is in a majestic God who has revealed himself throughout the Bible, and we can relate to him because he is personal, not impersonal, like their beginning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that just opens up to us things that we could not know without you revealing them. And for many who do not take your word to be truth, to be a revelation of what is reality, Father, they are like men going about in a dark room feeling, trying to figure out things. And so they promote this theory and this thought. And Father, they're so far from the truth. Lord, help us to reason with them. Help us to take them to the word. Help us to be able to help them to understand with the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray today for your blessing upon these words, your words, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, As we launch into day one of the creation week, I I need you to understand that we, at Beacon of Hope, teach that the creation week consists of six literal 24-hour solar days. There are many who do not. And I've already discussed the genre of Genesis to be literal, historical narrative, and not poetry and not allegory or symbolic talk. And we've noticed that the linguistic marker for Hebrew narrative as a little conjunction that begins each verse in Genesis 1, 2, all the way through 31. And you can mark them in your Bibles. The second verse starts with an and, and, The third verse, then. The sixth verse, then. The the ninth verse, then. Verse 11, then. Verse 14, then. And what it is, this little conjunction in the Hebrew narrative, it's a marker that says this took place, then this took place, then this took place, then this took place. Very, very important in identifying what genre this is. It's not poetry. And then today, I'd just like to talk a little bit about one more simple reason that this is a historical narrative that should be taken at face value, and that is the use of the Hebrew word for day, yom, Y-O-M, yom. Arguments for the 24 literal little literal 24-hour solar day are basically three pieces of evidence that are right within the text. 
It points certainly that the days of creation were 24-hour solar days and not long eons of time or ages. The first is the singular use of yam day. The singular use of yam day. When it's joined by a number, this is the second evidence, when it's joined by a a number or uh, one day or second day, etc., it shows that it's a day. And when it's bracketed by the phrase morning and evening, which is repeated five times in verse 8, verse 13, verse 29, verse 23, and verse 31, you see it very clearly At the end of verse 5, it says this, And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. One day. And so these three evidences show us that it's a 24-hour solar day. One commentator, after considering the repetition of the three above descriptors, said this, It not only means all days are the same, and that time is linear and events successive, but also that departing from such direct language would mean to take extreme liberty with the plain and direct meaning of the Hebrew language. And yet some insist on doing that with the little word yam. They take that word day to mean something totally different than what the Scripture clearly promotes here. And they do this in order to promote an old earth picture of the earth and creation. They wouldn't call it creation. (laughs) Psalm 90, verse 4, they all run to. And it says, For a thousand years in the sight, in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, and as a watch in the night. So they take yam here to show that it can be taken as a long period. You see, I mean, you can see it right in the Scripture. They use Scripture to deny Scripture. For a thousand years in the sight, in thy sight, are like yesterday. And they say, one day is like a thousand years. But the use of of the comparative particle translated to English with the words like or as shows that it's a comparative. It's saying the Hebrew syntax uses that marker to say it's like yesterday. It's like or as a watch in the night. The intention of the passage, this is poor interpretation, people. It's not taking the words to mean what they mean. It's, it's eisegesis where they're putting meaning into the text rather than taking a text at face value and taking the meaning out from the text. The intention of this passage in Psalms is not to tell us how long a day is, but rather to let us know that God reckons time differently than we do as human beings. But in Genesis 1, the intention of the passage has nothing to do with how God reckons time. But everything to do with recording for us the amount of time God used to create the world 
and whether this time period is identical to the seven-day week, which is the rhythm of historical time or not. Also, it's important to note that there is no comparative marker in Genesis 1 passages to mark the comparison being made. It's very, very categorical when it just says, and there was evening and there was morning as one day, like one day. It doesn't say that. It just says one day. Very clear. Some will also run to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and it says there, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Again, they will say that this is a mathematical equivalent. One day is literally equaling 1,000 years. How? Why would they say that when it says clearly, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years? Again, they're misinterpreting. There's problems with this. There is a comparative particle here, as or like, similar to Psalm 90 verse 4. But there are no comparatives in Genesis chapter 1. Secondly, the primary interpretation of the text in 2 Peter 3.8 is again how God looks at time in relation to his fidelity to his promises. It has nothing to do with defining the duration of a day to be an age or a long period of time and certainly no link to the days of creation in Genesis 1 except for those that take that verse and misinterpret it. Rather, this text has to do with the fact that the Lord is not willing for any to perish. He's not slow in his promise, but long-suffering. He is not subject to time in the sense that humans are, as some count slowness. That's in the following verse, verse 9. And the main intent of the passage, interpret it correctly, is to make a statement about God's fidelity to his promise and not define the meaning of the word day as it is used in Genesis 1. But men with many, many letters behind their name will say that's showing proof positive that these are long ages. Alan Ross relates four reasons for taking the natural and normal interpretation of Yom to mean a literal 24-hour solar day. First, he says, elsewhere, wherever it's used in the Bible, Yom is used when it's used with a number, it means a 24-hour day. Every place else where it's used with a number, it means a 24-hour day. Secondly, the Decalogue. Exodus 20, let's go there real quick, it won't take long. Exodus chapter 20, and let's look at verse 8 through 12. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of the Lord your God, in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. 
4, verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So each instance there, yam is used, it's referring back to creation. And it says that the Sabbath day, which would be Saturday, is based upon six days of work and then one day of rest. Our work week, if you will. You can't have it mean long periods of ages or you blow the whole thing. I mean, how does that work then if you're taking the creation week on which this is based and expanding it to long ages? Thirdly, from the fourth day on, there are days, years, signs, and seasons suggesting that the normal system is entirely operative at that time. Those days are equated or right along with the other markers for marking time. And you've got various things like years and signs and seasons, signs like the moon phases and so forth, marking uh, a month, okay? A full moon and then the new moon. And then it starts all over again, the cycles. And days are right in there. Uh, You're going to blow the whole system if you make days into long periods. And if Yom refers to an age, then the text would have to allow for a long period of day. And everybody that believes that would say, yeah, now you're getting it. But you'd also have to have a long period of night. And nobody talks about that. Hmm. It's inconsistent. Now, a good question which bears repeating. At this point, two questions might be asked. The first one is, is the Hebrew word yam, or day, ever used symbolically then? And is it easy to tell when yam is being used symbolically? And the answer to both questions is yes. Yes. But see, you've got to think through these things. It's not complex, but you do have to put your thinking hat on. It's impossible to use a word as a symbol or figuratively unless it already has a literal meaning. Did you get that? you got to have a literal meaning before you can make it symbolic. Okay? And I learned this lesson in art class back in seventh grade. Because I just wanted to be like Pablo Picasso. And I wanted to do abstract stuff. And my art teacher said, I want to see the real thing first. And then you can abstract from the real thing. If you can't draw the real thing first, all you're doing is playing, Lynette. <laughs> she had my number, didn't she? So you've got to have something with literal meaning to make it abstracted. And the word day cannot in Hebrew or English be used in the abstract or symbolic sense unless it already has clearly been understood in a literal meaning. Let me give you an example. In Exodus or Genesis chapter 2, look at Genesis chapter 2, we'll jump ahead a little bit. Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made 
earth and heaven. Now, no shrub or the field, and it just goes on and it says, in the day that God created. That's an interesting little statement. In the day that God created the heavens and the earth and every plant of the field before it was in the earth. Over in Numbers 7.10, there's another usage like this. It says, in the day the altar was anointed, the princes offered up their offering. Now, Numbers clearly spells out in the uh, rest of the chapter 7 that it took 12 literal days for the princes to offer up their offerings. And yet it refers to in the day that they offered their offerings. There, the day used is to symbolize them all, encompass them all. And the same with Genesis chapter 2. In the group of six literal days, which have creation in common, it is referred to as the day God created. But this is categorically not what we see in Genesis' account of the six days of creation. I hope I'm getting my point across. I don't want to belabor it too much. But the truth of the matter is, is that very, very educated men with much more schooling than I have, or you have, understand this totally different than the way that it's been written. And I want you to see that it's very easy to refute that. You do not have to be cowered by it. Now, I'd like to talk about the Holy Spirit. We see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In Genesis 1-2, there are three... Oh, I'm sorry. Just bear with me, okay? Because we're going to get to the narrative and good stuff and really easy flowing stuff that I can make applications off. But you've got to get this first, okay? So here it comes. <laughs> there are three circumstantial clauses. What is a circumstantial clause? It's really easy, okay? You have a statement and then you have a circumstantial clause behind it that gives background to the statement that's made. The statement that is made is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, there are three background clauses that explain what that means, or what actually happened. These don't, these don't, imply that there was imperfection, but merely describe the earth as unformed and unfilled early in the first day of creation. The earth was not imperfect, but only unfinished until the uh, completion of creation on the sixth day. So I want to look at these three clauses because that's what verse verse 2 is, okay? The earth was formless and void. This is the first circumstantial clause. It's given us background to verse 1. The earth was tohu vavohu. That's the Hebrew. These words occur together only three times in the Old Testament. Bohu occurs only with tohu. But tohu may occur alone. You say, Lynette, you're losing me. Don't get lost. Okay, just hang on. Tohu means desert. Bohu means empty. Together, tohu va bohu means a state of aridness and unproductiveness. Okay? 
Jeremiah 4.23 uses the word desolation. In Isaiah 34.11, there's a state of unproductiveness and emptiness. And so that's what we have here when we read that the earth was formless and void. Genesis 1-2 has been taken now, and that state of formlessness and void has been taken by those same guys that want long ages, and they shove a long time in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. It's called the gaps, the gap theory or the restitution theory. And it states that Genesis 1 refers to an original creation of the universe, and then sometime after that original creation, Satan rebelled. We read about him rebelling, so they take it from the Scripture. Satan rebelled against God and was cast from heaven to earth, and as a result of Satan's making his habitation on the earth, the earth was judged, And God's original creation was then placed under judgment. And the result of this judgment is the state described in Genesis 1-2 where it's empty and void. It's formless. It's void. That's the judgment of God because Satan fell to the earth and his original creation then was marred by that. And that took a long period of time. There was a heavens and an earth before, but then before when you get to verse 2, something happened, and they put a long period of time in there, and they say, see? But both Isaiah thirty four eleven and Jeremiah 23, the only other two places where these two words are used, bring a negative sense because both of those instances are passages in the context of judgmental oracles. That is not what this says, and I'll tell you why. Grammatically, the syntax doesn't allow for this. Why? Because it starts with that conjunction, and. It starts with the conjunction, and. Verse 2 is that little conjunction, and, which marks that it came right after verse 1, and it's a narrative, it's a flow. It can't be translated, and the earth became, and that's what they will say it is. It does not say that, but they will say it does. Exegetically, it's a fallacy because nowhere in the Bible does the Scripture teach that the earth was judged when Satan fell. It does teach that Satan fell. We studied that. What are the two chapters in the Bible that talk about about Satan and his fall? Can anybody tell me what those are? One more time and reverse them. There we go. (laughs) He had it right, just a little dyslexic, you know. I do it all the time. So Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And, And there you will read about Satan rebelling against God and being cast out of heaven down to earth and the environs of the earth. That is true, but it doesn't say that the earth was judged. Satan was judged, very clearly. Theologically, there's a fallacy. With all the sediment containing fossils, that then allows death to have taken place before chapter 3. If Satan was cast down to the earth after God created the heavens and the earth, in between verse 1 and 2, 
If Satan was cast down to the earth and God judged the earth, then all the sediments and all the fossils and death all took place prior to Genesis chapter 3. And whatever happened to God's pronouncement, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. All that death and judgment and everything that was on the earth because of Satan's fall to the earth and his judgment was good? No. It doesn't work. So why did guys come up with this theory? Well, Dr. Chalmers of Scotland in the 19th century, he was the man that was really the purveyor of this, and he was under pressure from the intellectual community. That is typically what happens, and he caved. That intellectual community claimed irrefutable proof of vast ages that the world as well as the existence of fossils much older than the biblical Adam. We reckon the earth to be six to 10,000 years okay, old. They reckon the earth, because of the fossils and so forth, to be billions of years old. But they don't understand what Jay Seeger so clearly helped us to understand, that there was a flood. And it, I, I'm not going to go into Jay's territory. That's like beyond me. But he did put it on the lowest level, and it's available on our website, and it's available on his website. You see, this Christian that capitulated, he proposed inserting a gap of millions of years between the first two verses of Genesis to accommodate the eons of Earth's history, allowing for the fossils in the gap. And therefore, the argument for vast Earth ages claimed by the 19th century uniformitarian geologists, rather than a cataclysmic thing that took place with the flood, they say it's always been the same, okay, and that's where they come up with this theory. They safely accept it without threatening the integrity of the Genesis account in the succeeding verses. Oh, but they destroyed the Genesis account. So sad. Some of you may have had a Schofield reference Bible. Schofield believed in this theory, sadly. So here are some other theological problems with the gap theory as well that may be used to refute the older earth presuppositions. Proponents would use Genesis 1.28, which in the King James Version has God giving the command for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and what? No. That's the proper Hebrew word. The King James says replenish. Replenish the earth. The verb translated replenish in the 1611 version simply means fill. And if you look at your marginal, if you have a King James version, if you look at your margin note, it says fill. But they took replenish to mean, oh, it has to be replenished because something went haywire. And that took place in between verse 1 and 2. Uh, secondly, a layer of sediment filled with fossils from pre-Adamic Race clearly speaks of death and decay prior to the fall of man as seen in Genesis 3. Romans 5.12 reiterates what took place in Genesis 3 as sin and death entering the world through one man. Not through Satan, but through one man. Adam, not fallen angel Lucifer. Thirdly, God pronounces his creation to be good seven times. 
in Genesis 1. How could he do it if there was a layer of sediment laced with dead fossils from his previous judgment? And if there was earthly life prior to the creation of Genesis 1, then the sun would have had to have been created to allow for such life. And the sun and the moon's creation on the fourth day makes absolutely no sense along with the rest of the creation days, to be honest with you. Sadly, many evangelicals bought into that theory. And there is a whole list of these guys on a website called BioLogos. BioLogos. And you will be shocked to see the names that are on that list. The second circumstantial clause is Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Describing the condition when God began his shaping process in creation. It speaks of at least two aspects. There was no light and the earth was not yet constituted firm, like a firm body. Henry Morris, Dr. Henry Morris, a creation research man, gave this description of the conditions at the time. I love it. Quote, the picture presented is one of all the basic material elements sustained in a pervasive watery matrix through the darkness of space. The same picture is suggested in 2 Peter 3.5 where it says, the earth was standing out of water and in water. Proverbs 8.27 tells us, gives us a little hint. This is very interesting, people, if we have any flat earthers out here. There are literally flat earthers. I mean, they're serious, okay? But they never read Proverbs 8.27, which says, when he, Yahweh, inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm skies above. Sorry, it ain't flat. Okay? Around 500 B.C., there was a Greek philosopher who figured out from the moon, that it was round. And if it was round, and as it goes through its orbits, he saw the line between the darkness and the light in the moon, he said, we have to also, we have darkness, we have light, we have to be spherical. 500 BC, Aristotle declared that the earth was a sphere around 350 BC. Okay? I'll tell you, God had it, Way earlier. <laughs> he explained it way earlier. So, very interesting, these thoughts. The fact that this compass circle had to be set on the face of the deep shows that the face of the deep originally had no such... I don't even know how to say this word. It, it wasn't a sphere yet. It was formless. Okay? It was, it was a zero with the rim knocked off. I, I don't know how to, it was kind of like our reading today um, in Isaiah, you know, they're less than nothing. How do you get to be less than nothing? Well, that's the way the earth was. It was formless, exactly as intimated in Genesis 1-2. Elements of matter and molecules of water were present, but not yet energized. The forces of gravity were not yet functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were the electromagnetic forces yet in operation 
and everything was just formless and darkness, or as the scriptures say, darkness. And it was void and formless. God's word is true. Francis Schaeffer, whom I admire, one of my favorite men to read, says this, At this point in the process of creation, what which has been made up to this time lacks differentiation. I love him. In other words, it would seem that we have here the creation of bare being. He's the one that capitalized on the truth with a capital T. Okay? Because he knew men were no longer understanding truth. And he said, so true truth. It's spelt with a capital T. True truth, reality, what we get from the scriptures. He says, goes on to say, what God has made is without form. There is no differentiation between the parts. Then we go on into the third verse and beyond, and we find a continual unfolding of differentiation. There are thus two steps, creation out of nothing, ex nihilo, and differentiation. And we'll be getting into that, not next week, but soon when we start studying the days of the week. There's, there's just a, a separating out, right? It's beautiful, light and darkness and, and water from the earth, and there's a differentiation that takes place. Well, the third uh, circumstantial clause says this, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. That described a particular condition when God began to, as Schaefer would say, differentiate the bare being he had called into existence from nothing. The spatial and material aspects of God's initial work here have been expressed, and now there's a distinctly divine aspect introduced to the picture. The word spirit means breath, rah, okay? And it can be translated as wind or breath or spirit, depending on the context. So here, the process of creation, the need is not for wind or breath, or a breath, but there is one for the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is seen in the formation and as a formative cause of life. In Job 26.13, we read this, by his breath, his meaning Yahweh, by Yahweh's breath, rah, the heavens are made beautiful. Also in Job 27.3, it says, For as long as life is in me, and the roh of God, the Spirit of God, is in my nostrils. Genesis 2.7 tells us that God bent down and breathed the breath of life into the form that he had created out of clay. So the activity of the Spirit of God was moving, it says, Right? It says, and the Spirit, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This activity of moving, it means to shake. We see that in Jeremiah 23 9, or to tremble, or as in Deuteronomy 32 uh, 32, 11, it says it's translated hovers or fluttereth. Okay? So think of this kind of a movement. And the activity has been interpreted by some to mean like a mother hen over eggs. 
She's sitting on the eggs and she moves about over the eggs, flutters over them. This moving and hovering, fluttering over something is understood to be a rapid back and forth movement over something. Henry Morris again, Dr. Morris says this, it's significant that the transmission of energy in the operation of the cosmos is in the form of waves, in the form of waves, light waves, heat waves, sound waves, and so forth. In fact, except for nuclear forces which are involved in the structure of matter itself, there are only two fundamental types of forces that operate on matter, gravitational forces and the forces of electromagnetic spectrum. All are associated with the field of activity and with the transmission by wave motion. Waves are typically rapid back-and-forth movements. Sound familiar? And they are normally produced by a vibratory motion of a wave generator of some kind. Well, I've never heard the Holy Spirit be filled with the wave generator of God. But that's exactly what he did here. Energy cannot create itself. It's most appropriate that the first impartation of energy to the universe is described as a vibrating movement of the Spirit of God himself. I tell you, God's got it all wrapped up, people. It's we who have needs, not him. And he's explained it to us in the scripture. It's just that we're so thick and we think we're so smart that we leave this and go to our own vain imaginations. This activity was performed over the surface of the waters. That is to say, the Spirit of God moved over the unformed, undifferentiated, bare being that God originally called into existence from nothing in the beginning. And then in verse 3 through 21, the differentiation and forming of that which was yet formless and void will take place throughout the creation week. And so all I have to say is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I behold your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of us? Or the son of man? You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you have placed everything under his feet. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're considering considering things that are so far beyond us that words just don't cut it. And yet that's all we have. And so we try. And we pray, Lord, that some of these words today would thrill the hearts of your people. And that they would engender confidence in the veracity of your truth that you've revealed to us. You are screaming out to us, I am real. Or as Schaefer once said, there is God and he is not silent. Oh God, let us take these things today and be encouraged and enthralled by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.